feel like I say this every, every single time I get up here, but I am so excited to be here with you tonight. Uh, I love church. I love you guys. I love what God's doing in our midst. It's an exciting time. Uh, we have been in a series for quite a while now called We the Kingdom, talking about what does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God, and what does it mean to, to, to say we follow Jesus? How, how should that affect the way we live our life? Are, are, there, are, are there defining characteristics as kingdom people? And uh, tonight I'm, I'm honored and excited to get to introduce uh, who's going to be speaking tonight. Uh, if you didn't know, uh, which I think you know, but uh, Antioch is a part of a movement, a, a network, an international movement of churches. Um, we have 40 U.S. churches here in the States. Antioch Salt Lake is one of 40, and it's amazing to be a part of this family. We've got works all over the world. And uh, tonight, I get to introduce a man who's passionate about Jesus, passionate about people, has a ton of wisdom, has been a part of the Antioch movement for going on 20 years, and he currently serves as the U.S. director for the Antioch movement. Please give it up for Drew Stedman. Hey guys, so awesome to be here. Like Cody said, my name's Drew I uh, love coming to Salt Lake. I haven't been here in a while, but I actually got to visit right before the church was planted. And it is so cool to be here and see what God has done in the last five, six years. Like, way to go. I mean, you guys are the answer to so many prayers and so proud of you responding to Jesus and what God's doing in this house. Uh, I wish I could bring my family here. We love to travel together to visit churches whenever possible, but I brought a picture instead. And so that's my wife, Bethany, and our four kids. So Grace has the curly hair. She's eight. Abby Joy, her birthday is this weekend. She'll be seven. Audrey's five, and Joshua is two and a half. Uh, this fall, we actually bought a motorhome that I'm reselling. Let me know if you're in the market. And we traveled as a family for two months to visit churches in the eastern half of the U.S. So we hit up 15 different churches over the course of eight weeks. Let me say, if you have not lived with four young children in a motorhome for that length of time, you've not really lived. It was amazing, and I was tired. Uh, it's not that we don't like you guys in the western half of the U.S., it's just the distance is a little further. So airplanes, praise God for those. But hey, I'm so pumped to be here today. You know, um, whenever you're a guest speaker, this, this cool thing normally happens where they invite you to speak, and then they ask you, like, what do you want to talk about? And it's normally something really cool, like your life story, your favorite Bible verse, something like that. But when you come to Antioch, Salt Lake City, here's what happens. They tell you about the series they're in, and they give you a topic of submission. You guys go hard up here. I mean, I like it. It's like the mountain thing, I guess. I don't know, but wow, buckle up. Here we go. In all fairness to Cody, I did have a few choices. Uh, I picked this one because I'm excited about it. But the topic of submission, that's where we're going tonight. So before we dive in, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pause for a second, and what comes to mind when you think of that word? The word submission. Don't worry, you don't have to tell anybody. Just in your mind, first thing that comes to mind when you think of submission. And I could go around and we'd all have different answers, things we feel, stories, people, whatever it may be. But let me tell you something that I, I think is going to be true, that almost every single person, what comes to mind is something negative. Submission, we, we view it through a negative lens. Why is that? You know, submission on the surface, like, you, you probably know intellectually that it's a good thing. I mean, you're, you probably wouldn't be alive if it weren't for this deal. 
You know, parents, this is basically all of life, is getting these little kids to submit to us so they don't play in the street. I have a buddy who is in life group with me in Waco, and he lives on the edge of town. And so they've got this big backyard, and their backyard is, they have this part that's fenced in and cleared and safe and kid-friendly. But on the other side of the fence, they have this ravine, they have snakes, they have farming equipment, you know, like not where kids are supposed to go. So their kids, they used their authority, gave their kids a rule and said, you can only play inside the fence unless mom and dad go with you. So the kids are supposed to submit, right? So one day they let their kids out to play, and after five minutes, their three-year-old son or two-and-a-half-year-old son comes running back in and he's crying. Now, if you're a parent, you know that kids going outside and running back in crying is really normal. It's like every time my kids go outside, they run back in crying. I fell down. I hurt my feelings. I saw a bird. You know, like something (laughs) is making you cry. So your instinctive reaction is like, okay, what's going on? So this, this kid comes up to them, though, and they start to piece together. Maybe something really did happen, and as they got closer, they smelled gasoline. And they're like, what, what is that? And it dawns on them that they're finally able to figure out what happened. He had disobeyed his parents, climbed the fence, and they had this tiller in the backyard. And next to the tiller was a gas container, and it looked really tasty. It was like this nice brown liquid. So he just lifted that thing up and took a giant swig of gasoline. So they rush him to the emergency room. I still remember that text, like, please, please pray. And I'm like, what? Your kid did what? You know, and he's okay, don't worry. But, I mean, he, he ended up getting pneumonia. Like, it was this giant drama because their kid did not submit to the rules his parents put in front of him. All right, so we all get that at the core, submission is not necessarily a bad thing. So why is it negative? And the reason it's negative is that oftentimes the very ones we were supposed to submit to misused their authority. It wasn't just don't go outside the fence, but they put rules, they made you submit to something that ultimately was not designed to protect you or to free you, but was actually used to hurt you. And I doubt there's a single person in this room that doesn't have something like that as part of your story. Somewhere along the way, we lost our trust in our ability to submit to authority, and that's from personal experience. It could be a domineering parent that used their power to control you. could be a boss or professor that actually misused their authority to advance their own career at your expense. It could even be, in some situations, an abusive relationship where somebody abused their authority for their own gain. And these kind of things leave scars on our soul. For most of us, we didn't just learn the lesson about the gasoline when we were a kid. We also learned the lesson that we can't fully trust authority when we were a kid. And for most of us, that lesson has been reinforced with every passing year. In fact, if you find it online, you'll see these phrases like, the only person you can trust is yourself. We're taught the message, you can't trust authority. Submission is bad because ultimately everybody's looking out for their own interest, and if you submit, you're going to end up hurt. And I wish I could say that, you know, that's the world, but the church has always been this great place of healing and freedom. But I think for many of us that the church itself became a place where authority was misused as well. Submission was thrown around, and that just contributed to the pain. And so as I preach today, I just acknowledge there's a lot of pain on this topic, and a lot of that pain is tied to personal experience. And let me just say, if that's you, I'm so sorry. And it's my prayer today that this is a message of healing and ultimately reorientation of what is submission supposed to look like, not the pain that we experience where it's been abused, but what has God designed this to be, which I believe ultimately is life and freedom for every single one of us. So as we dive in, you know, the question of what does it mean to submit to a flawed human authority is really complex. 
And, you know, sometimes it means that we've got to overlook the flaws of another person and just choose to submit even when we disagree. At other times, it means we actually have to set a boundary, even speak out against what we see an authority doing. I mean, it's complicated. In fact, every scenario is probably going to have a slightly different answer. And I'm going to hit a few principles right here at the end, but I don't think how we submit to human authority is the main question we need to answer this evening. I think we've got to take a step back because I think there's something bigger going on of what does it mean for us to submit to God's authority? In fact, I believe that's the the core of the Christian faith. What does it mean for us to live a life of submission to God's authority? I believe that's the foundation for almost all of theology. It's a huge question. And I'd argue that that's the main question for our generation of what does a life submitted to God actually look like in our day and age? And I think today if we get that right, I think today if we can learn to trust our Heavenly Father that even though flawed human authority, that's been abused and misused, our Heavenly Father's love and authority for us has never been tainted. He's good, He loves you, He wants your best, and He ultimately wants to set you free. And if we can reorient our perspective today, submitted to God's authority, I think we can flip that script in our mind and find it to be the very place of life and freedom that God has for us. Sound good? So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at how Jesus answered this question. And then we're going to also look at a different passage of Scripture where someone else answered this question. And we're going to study the book of Matthew, chapter 4, and all told, we're going to read chapter, uh, verse 1 all the way to the, uh, verse 11. And this is the story of the temptation of Jesus. So I want to kick it off by just reading the first two verses to set the scene. It says this, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. It's like my favorite Bible verse, that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Like, thank you, Captain Obvious, for writing that into Scripture. Like, what else was supposed to happen there? But actually, this entire, these these two short sentences are filled with symbolism that tie into the very heart of the entire Bible message. You know, sometimes as we're learning to study the Bible and read Scripture for ourselves. Sometimes you can get a little bit lost. Like, have you guys ever done the Bible in a year plan? Anybody ever make it past February, you know? Because you get to Leviticus, and it's like, whew, start over next year, you know? It's the Bible in 10-year plan. That's what I need. It's a complicated book at times. And, you know, it's 66 different books in one, written over the course of a 1,000 years, all different types of genre of literature. You can get lost a little bit. But we got to just realize that the Bible, even though there's a lot to it, it still tells one cohesive story. And this one cohesive story is like every other story. It has characters, it has a plot, and it even has a setting. You know, my daughter, she's turning seven this weekend, and we're hosting a Beauty and the Beast birthday party. Pray for me. Um, but, you know, you think about like any story, you have the characters, you have, you have Beauty, you have the Beast, you have Gaston, or whoever else is in the book. I don't remember. You know, you have this plot about, is she going to recognize him and love him for who he really is despite his beastly character? You have a setting. It takes place in a castle. It takes place in a forest. Like, you have these plot elements that are a part of every single story. And the Bible is no different. And at the heart of the temptation of Jesus, you may not realize this. I think this is one of the most significant passages, maybe next to the cross and the resurrection in the plot of the whole Bible, is this story right here. And I'll break that down for you here in a second. And before we get into that, though, I want to point out something that even if you've read the passage before, maybe you haven't noticed, is that the setting is really important. And the setting actually communicates a lot about our topic tonight. Jesus was led by the desert. Where? Into the desert or the wilderness. 
And in the Bible, that represents an uncultivated, barren, lonely place is the wilderness. And next time you read your Bible, pay attention to how many stories take place in the wilderness. It's really pretty fascinating. All throughout the Bible, the wilderness is a common setting. Why is that? You see, there's another place in the Bible that's also really common, and it's the garden. And the garden and the wilderness are often contrasted to each other, and they're central to our story. And like any other good book, the plot begins where? At the beginning. And so for us to understand the temptation of Jesus, I actually want to start first and look at a different temptation that we're going to see right at the very beginning in the Bible. In the book of Genesis, right from the very first chapter, you see this beautiful poem of God creating the world. And it says that on the first day, God spoke and light entered into the darkness. And that light was followed by life exploding across the earth. And then it got to the pinnacle of creation on the sixth day where God created man. And Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 describes how he formed us out of the dust. He breathed into us life. And then what did God do? He put us where? In a garden. And that's what we're made for. In the Bible, the garden represents our home. It represents the place we belong. It represents the place where we're at peace. The garden is what every single one of us is made for. In the garden, we have purpose. In the garden, we have perfect relationship with God. And in the center of the garden were two trees, and these trees are incredibly symbolic for ways of living. On the one hand, you have the tree of life. And it's a little bit of a mystery to scholars, but I believe the tree of life represents that perfect relationship of communion with God that we're all created for. But then you've got this other tree, and this other tree is the only thing God created that He told us to stay away from. And this tree was called the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you grew up around the Bible, you nod your head like, yeah, I've heard that before. But sometimes we've got to take a step back and realize the Bible is, is weird sometimes. Like, what's it talking about? Like, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, like, that's the bad thing. Of all the possible problems in the world, that's the one we're told to stay away from. It wasn't like the, the tree of murder, the tree of lust, you know? It wasn't like the tree of life over here and the tree of shoplifting over here. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Really? Like, why? Why is that the thing we're called to stay away from? I mean, just think about it for a second. Doesn't the knowledge of good and evil sound like something a religion is supposed to give you? Isn't that morals? Isn't that another word for it? Like, why is that the thing that we're told you stay away from that in God's perfect creation? So if you keep reading Genesis chapter 3, this is where the tension starts to come into the plot. It's also where we meet the antagonist. And what you see is you see Eve in the garden, and I'm going to just read, I'm going to slightly um, paraphrase it a little bit here just for the sake of time. But I want to read Genesis chapter 3, in the first five verses. The serpent or the devil said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? She goes on to answer him and say, no, actually God said we could eat from whatever tree we want except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. And picking it back up, you will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and this part right here is crucial, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There are two significant things from this story. The first is the devil's temptation always starts with calling God's character into question. Why don't we submit to authority? Because we don't trust authority. He's wanting to say, God's holding back from you. In other words, the gasoline tastes really good. There's life on the other side of the fence. Have you ever thought that maybe, maybe God just is arbitrarily saying, don't go there, when actually there's all kinds of good stuff if you cross over? 
He's not looking out for you. He doesn't have your best in mind. You know, that's where all temptation starts. Can you really trust God is the real question here. Another word for it is faith. And just bear that in mind because we're going to see that same theme played out when Jesus is tempted. I think if we're all looking at our own lives, we see that same theme played out day in and day out in the here and now. And this is why I think it's so crucial that each one of us pursues an active relationship with the person of Jesus because it's only when we know His character for who He really is that we can combat that whispering voice that we all face. The second part of this story is the temptation and ultimately why this tree is forbidden is because what this tree represents is rather than us living united with God, this tree is saying, why don't you go try to be your own God outside of His authority? Why don't you put yourself in the position to judge good and evil? Why don't you be the authority instead of submitting to His? Why don't you try to become God yourself? And that right there, our desire to be our own authority is at the very heart of sin. I don't think it's just the fact that we've been wounded by authority. I think it's the fact that we all have this thing inside of us called sin that wants to be the authority ourselves and doesn't want to submit to God is really what's driving it. Are we going to trust Him or do we want to be the boss? Do we want to be in charge? The story goes on, they ate the fruit, and if you read the rest of the passage, it's tragic. It tells the story of a ruptured relationship between God and man. Does that sound familiar? It tells the story of shame. I read these words, and it's, it's my own story. It's that feeling I think we've all experienced when we wake up and we think about the night before, and what do you feel? You just feel that emptiness. Maybe some of you walked into church today, and you, you know that feeling really well right now. We want to be a place of healing for you. It's that ultimate feeling of destruction where you look at your life and you think, I never thought I'd get to this point. And as we read in the story, death is introduced in the world, and in the end, mankind is forced to leave the garden exiled where? To the wilderness. In many ways, you could say the Bible is a story of exile, of trying to find our way back home. Now, sometimes when I read a book, and a book gets really intense, I'm one of those people that likes to read the end of the book. Don't judge me, okay? But, you know, it's like I want to make sure the main character doesn't die, and I just don't want to get attached to him and you know, as long as that's, I can handle the suspense as long as I know they're not going to die. So, I'm that guy. I like to read the end of the story. And remember, the Bible is a story. It's a book. And so, if you go to the last chapter in the Bible, the book of Revelation chapter 22, let me tell you what you're going to find. You're going to find a garden, you're going to find the tree of life, and you're going to find God once again restored to relationship with man. You're going to see the restoration of the garden. The rest of the Bible is the story of how we get back there. And that story predominantly takes place in the wilderness. You see, when we become our own gods, we have this habit of turning gardens into deserts. We have a habit of taking life and making it barren. That's what happens when we become our own authority because we were never designed to hold that power. We were created to live in communion with God, not to be separated doing our own thing. Doing our own thing doesn't lead to life. And just like my friend, God set boundaries for us, not to hamper us, but to protect us so that we can experience the fullness of life and ultimate freedom. Submission is the doorway to freedom and life. It's not a burden. That's not how it was created to be. I think this whole thing is so relevant in our world today. You know, I actually made this little illustration because I think this is how we're taught to live. It looks something like this, where each one of us, this is our first illustration, each one of us, we have our spiritual life, we have our relationships, 
We have our self-care, you know, diet, exercise, all that. And then we've got our passions and our work and our vocation. And we're taught that life is about how do we pursue meaning in all of these areas. We want to have this nice, well-rounded, healthy life. And that's the key for us to thrive. There's a huge problem to this illustration. And, you know, you see this. This is like, I think, the foundational philosophy behind almost every internet meme or moral statement you're going to find online. It's some variation of this right here. But the problem with this right here is what's at the center? Me. I am the authority trying to pursue meaning in all of these areas. I am in the driver's seat of my own life. I am in the the control of who I'm going to be. And it's all going to be through my power, my, my, my. Guys, I don't see that as how we're supposed to live for those of us who are in Jesus. I've got a book coming out this next week. I'm excited about it. It's called The Gospel According to Culture. Uh, and it's the, the essential premise of the book is that in our nation today, we're moving out of a cultural Christian worldview, which is all about appearance according to God's command. It's just looking good on the outside. And we're moving into a humanistic worldview, which is all about pursuing our own dreams and passions through our own strength and then trying to be good to others. And the core point of the book is that neither of those are the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is entirely different because it's not based on our power or our authority or our ability. I love that you're in this series called We the Kingdom because that's what this is all about. How do we live the kingdom that's anchored in the gospel of Jesus as opposed to all the messages the world throws our way? So check it out. It's going to release on Friday. But what happened to us and what I see everywhere is that we've placed ourselves blatantly in authority. Our culture today, it's not anti-God. We're pretty tolerant of God as long as God's willing not to be the authority. As long as God will submit to our authority, we'll put up with them. But in our culture today, God is a commodity, not an authority. We've demoted God to be our spiritual service provider as a part of our well-rounded life, and we're not afraid to give Him a bad review if we don't think He's measuring up to the job. We want to judge God according to our standards, whether that's our feelings, our desires, or our culture. We want to be the judge of Him and what He is supposed to do. We are very much living as the authority And there's a Christian variation of this. You know, maybe we don't say it so blatantly, but we think we can share. Like, we'll be the authority of our well-rounded life, and God can have authority too. We'll be equals. We'll be partners in this deal. You see it everywhere. I mean, and the more I hope and pray as we're talking about it today, you're going to see this so much. So many of the messages, so many of the Christian messages we get is all about us pursuing our dreams and our passage and our power and our authority and our life. That's not how we're made to live. Your love, don't get me wrong. God absolutely loves you. God created you unique. God made you for a purpose, but the only way you're going to get there is by submitting to Him and Him alone. There is no other way into your destiny. You will never find it by trying to be your own authority. Your own authority only leads to destruction and the desert. God wants to lead you into the purpose He made you for, but it's only going to happen when you submit to Him and Him alone. We need to resist this lie today that we can eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. You get to pick one fruit. We can dress it up spiritually all we want with Christian catchphrases, but at the end of the day, there's only one. With all that as the backdrop, I want to go back to the life of Jesus. Because Jesus in the Bible, he is contrasted to Adam over and over again. In fact, if you want a good Bible study, read the book of Genesis and then read the Gospels in particular the Gospel of John, and you're going to see so many parallels to those two books. But you see Jesus, just like Adam and Eve, Jesus is also going to be tempted, and His temptation is almost identical, and it all comes down to the issue of authority. 
The one main difference is Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden surrounded by food. Jesus was tempted in a desert, and he was hungry. It's a prophetic picture of what happens when we become our own authority. We end up hungry, we end up isolated, and it's destroyed and barren around us. We took God's garden and we turned it into the wilderness. And so Jesus stepped into our wilderness to answer the same question that we were unable to answer. And let me show you what happened. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Remember, the devil always, always starts by calling into question God's character. If you are the Son of God, we got to spend time with God to know who He really is. And what's the temptation? Turning stones into bread. Like that on its surface isn't a negative thing. In fact, Jesus' first public miracle was turning water into wine. That's not the problem. The problem is that He was being tempted to use His authority outside of God's will for His own provision. I mean, isn't this the message of our world today? Do what feels right. That's another way of saying this. Use your power to chase the things you want so you'll be happy. And that's what we call freedom in our society today. You notice the things that our world tells us is going to fill us, maybe our equivalent of turning stones into bread, whether it's sexual pleasure or money or the accumulation of possessions or power. There's so many different ways of looking at it. But almost every single one of them, these things we term freedom are actually the doorway into addiction. Literally, slavery. Our authority doesn't lead us into the life that we think it does. So how does Jesus respond? He says, no, man only lives by every word that comes from my Father's mouth. In other words, even though I'm hungry and I don't know where my provision is coming from, I will trust my Father to provide for me rather than take things in my own authority. No. So then we get to the next temptation. The devil took him, this is starting in verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, we see that same lie again. He said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's one's a little bit more complicated, but essentially what's happening here is the devil's saying, okay, you want to be the Messiah and rescue everybody? That's cool. Why don't you start off your ministry by going to the temple and prove yourself to everyone? I mean, I mean, come on, you know, you've like fly down a couple hundred feet. I'll follow you, you know. It's not bad logic. It's a viral marketing campaign. Like, that's what's happening here. Make a statement so people know who you are. Prove your identity to me. And what does Jesus say? No, I'm not going to put God to the test. I'm not going to go make some kind of decision and expect God to bail me out and bless me. Did you notice the devil even had a Bible verse so he could dress it up spiritually for Jesus? Now, let's get real. How often do we do the same thing? We want to follow our own desires. We give ourselves a Bible verse to justify it, but at the end of the day, it's our authority, not His. Guys, God is a great leader. He wants to lead you into the life and peace that your heart desires. You're all made for the garden, not the desert, and that's where God's wanting to lead you. Sometimes it's a little counterintuitive, but you have to trust His leadership over your own. I cannot tell you as a pastor how many times people want to meet with me and you know, talk through some decision in life. And it's like, I show up at the meeting just, you know, wanting to have a good conversation, and I feel like I'm stepping into a courtroom because they have listed out on the defensive all the reasons why this is God's will for them. I'm like, okay, then why'd you want to meet with me, you know? I mean, if you're that clear, I don't care. You don't need my approval. 
But I think what's happening is deep down inside, they know that they're stepping outside God's authority and they're trying to justify it. Here's a little freebie. If you have to rationalize something, it's probably worth praying it through again. You can get a Bible verse. I've done this so many times. I can make a great little, like, why I think this is God's will, but deep down inside, you and only you know, are you really submitted to His authority or are you chasing your own desires? Here's the last temptation. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. And this right here, it's getting kind of blatant. If you'll bow your knee to me, all the things you want, your mission in life will be accomplished, and you get to bypass the suffering. All I need is this small little issue of you worshiping me first. You know, isn't that the lie we all believe? That we can go, that we can still be in good standing with the world, we can go pursue the things we want and have God at the same time? That we can bow our needs to God's authority and culture's authority or bow our needs to God's authority and the authority of our own emotion, and that's going to somehow lead us into life. Guys, we don't get to serve two masters. If you bow your knee to any authority other than Jesus, you end up in slavery. You end up in the wilderness. And Jesus knows that. That's why he says, worship God and worship God only. In other words, come what may in this life, God's going to be my authority And as we're going to see in a minute, even if it leads me to a hard place, I'm still going to trust Him. Because ultimately, only God can lead me into life. I can't lead myself there. Like I said earlier, I think this is the main question we have to ask today. Who is the authority? I'm not talking about any one issue. You know, this is still going to be the same question that has to be asked 100 years from now, 200 years from now. It's the same question that was asked 500 years ago. It's the story of mankind. Who is the authority? Is it God or is it us? If we wanted to get practical, how do you respond to something like this? I want to start, give you a couple different pointers. First and foremost, this week I want to challenge you to search your heart. Who are you following? And I, I am convinced that God is good to us. He's a loving father. He's not trying to hurt you. He's not trying to condemn you. He's trying to rescue you. He's really good at pointing out to you when you're living out of your own authority. Here's a tip. Whenever you're asking God to reveal something to you, if it's the Holy Spirit's conviction, it will have hope. And if it's the devil's condemnation, it won't. Condemnation tells you you're messed up and you can never change. Conviction tells you you're messed up and there's hope to get out of it. Sometimes conviction feels like a gut punch, but it always has hope associated with it. I'm going to trust this week, and I just pray, God, speak over my friends, Holy Spirit conviction, where we're living out of our own authority. The next thing we have to do is we have to press into the character of God. We get so many messages in our world. We are bombarded, whether it's social media, the news, the books we read, we are bombarded with messages from the world. And if we are not spending time getting to know the character of God, eventually those messages will win out. We don't submit to authority because we don't know the authority. Human authority is flawed, but God's isn't. He's perfectly good, and He loves you. And the more you get to know Him, the more you find the joy of submitting to Him and discover the life that He has for you. And lastly, we get to that sticky point of part of this process of submitting to God's authority is learning to submit to one another, this thing called mutual submission. 
I heard a pastor say one time, the thing about blind spots, which we all have, the thing about blind spots is, you ready for this? It's profound. They're blind spots. You can't see them. So you have blind spots that you cannot see by definition in your quest to follow God. And rather than just rattle off a list of all the do's and don'ts with this, I thought I'd just tell you a short story in my own life. What does this look like for me in the part of submitting to God's authority but mutually submitted to one another? I'll highlight a few principles from it. I was in my mid-20s, and I had this relationship, a short relationship with this gal, and it ended just pretty poorly. And, you know, I think up to that point in my life, dating was just kind of this carefree, fun thing. But for whatever reason in this relationship, I found stuff inside of me, these fears I had. I found stuff in the relationship of poor communication and some trust issues. And in the end, it was fine, but I just, I felt my own inadequacy. And for whatever reason, here's what got to me is I thought, it's a really big deal. Whoever I end up dating and ultimately marrying, that's going to shape the trajectory of my life. The kid, my kids, you know, everything that matters most to me will be defined by that de- decision. And it just got me to thinking, like, what if, you know, we just had this really easy relationship and never dealt with those issues and got married? It could have been really painful, maybe even life-altering for both of us. And, you know, God's grace, I, I think, stepped in and kept that from going anywhere, but it put the fear of God in me. So then when I met Bethany, who I'm now married to, I thought, I'm going to do this different. So we dated for a while. It was, you know, it was fun and casual, but things started to get serious. And about the time I decided, you know, I need to start seriously praying about proposing, I decided I really want to make sure this is submitted to God. I don't want to start a relationship if this is not God's will for both of us. I just, I don't want to go there, even though my emotions want that. So I did a two-week fast where I was just, God, and I'm not saying that's like the standard, okay? I'm just saying, it was about, I'm messed up. God, reveal anything inside of me that needs to change. But then the other thing I did is I said, I'm going to submit myself to other people. I don't trust myself to see this clearly. I have blind spots. It's too close to my heart. So I went to my parents and her parents, which in our story, we're just so blessed that they really are spiritual authorities. I went to two different pastors in the church who had discipled me, and then I went to a couple of trusted friends. And I just said, guys, my life's an open book. And my first question to them is, what do you see in me that would concern you about getting married? Not, is she the right one for me? How do I need to change to be the right one for her? And then I said, what do you see in our relationship that worries you? And just, whatever's there. And, you know, through that time of prayer, of my own heart and all that, I really felt confident. Like, no, this is what God has for me. And I'm so grateful, you know, that just the the, uh, realization is best I know I've fully submitted to God. And that's been a great foundation for our marriage. So a couple principles I want to pull from it. First is, I willingly submitted, voluntarily submitted. Submission is not something you demand of something else unless you're a parent. Submission is not something you demand of something else. Submission is something you give to someone else. Did you catch that? I do not demand submission. That's not your role. That's where things get weird. I instead submit to someone because of the humility of recognizing I have blind spots I don't see. Every one of us needs to be submitted to somebody else. Nobody is above that, and you never will be. In fact, the more authority God gives you in this life, the more you need to be submitted, not less, because the responsibility that you have resting on you. Second principle is that the closer something is tied to your heart, the more you need to be submitted to somebody else. All right? Like, I know we all hear God, but I don't trust myself to hear God on deep emotional issues, or at least I don't trust myself to perfectly hear God. I know God speaks to me in those moments, but I also know how easily I can confuse His voice with my desires. Third principle is what would I have done if I had had a different response? You know, if these people that I was saying speak into my life 
How I'd say it is like this. If one or two of them had a concern, I would have viewed that as a yellow light. I'm going to slow this down, really dive into what they're saying, and check it out. Ultimately, this is my decision to make, and I wasn't going to abdicate that. But I would have really taken it seriously. But if everybody gave me the same concern, I would have viewed that as a red light. To me, if they're all seeing all these people I trust that God has put in my life in places of authority, and they all see the same thing, or most of them see the same thing, then that means there's something I don't see about myself, and until that gets resolved, I need to not do this. And that wasn't some heavy legalistic thing. That was actually freedom so that both of us could walk into God's calling. All right, so your story is going to look different, but I think those same principles will apply in most situations. Let me wrap up with this, going back to Jesus. He submitted to God, and His submission led Him to the cross. And I just picture Him hanging there on the cross And, you know, the God who refused to turn stones into bread became a broken body and ultimately bread for each one of us. A God who at the temple refused to cast himself down at some public display of power ended up being condemned to death at that same temple. And a God who ultimately refused to bend his knee to the authorities of this world was executed by this world for treason. And on the sixth day, which in the Jewish calendar is the day that man was created, The Son of Man breathed His last. And, you know, I think about all that, and I think if the story ended on Good Friday, then I'd have to ask the question, can we trust God to submit to Him? But you're here today because you know the story didn't end on Good Friday. Because on Sunday, which was the first day of the week, the day creation began, do you know what we see? We see a world in darkness and God speaking and light entering the world again. We see life bursting out of this tomb, and we see Jesus rising from the dead with an empty grave behind him. And where was that grave? It was in a garden. And what does he do? He turned around and he breathed on every single one of us, the breath of life. The book of Genesis began in a garden in union with God, and it ended in a desert on the cusp of slavery. And the gospels began in the desert in slavery, and it ended once again in the garden with union with God. Guys, that's our story. That's the God we serve. Submission is not a burden because God's leading you out of darkness into freedom. He wants to take you out of the desert, the barrenness of our own decisions, and lead us into the life that he created us for. All of us, deep down inside, we long for the garden. We want to be home. We want to be in that place of peace. And you're never going to get there as long as you're unwilling to give up your authority. We can't keep eating the fruit from that tree anymore. But if instead we go to Jesus in our brokenness, in our weakness, in all of our flaws and say, I don't know how this works, but as best I know, I submit to you. God's really good. You don't have to figure this out perfectly. It's just a heart response to him of, okay, God, I'm all yours. And if you do, he's going to lead you. And if you do, you're going to find that garden once again. Amen? Let's stand. Today, in Jesus, you are free from the tyranny of your own authority. Do you realize that? What our world says is freedom is actually our destruction, but you are set free from that today to be under his authority. And I want to speak to one group of people in particular, and that's those of you in this room who you've never made the decision before to submit to God's authority. Maybe you grew up around the church and around spiritual things. Maybe you know the Bible. Maybe you know all the stories that I've quoted. Maybe you had all the truth that we talked about today, but you've never made that decision for yourself. 
And this right here is the heart of what we call the gospel message. It's the story of a God who loved you so much. He died for you. He gave up his life. And then he conquered death and rose again to invite you into that same life. And the Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that he is Lord, in other words, that he's going to be our authority, and we believe in our heart that he conquered death and rose from the dead after dying on a cross for our sin, then we are saved. We're restored back to the garden. And if you have never made that decision, I believe today's your day. And before we go on any further, I'd like to invite all of us to bow our head and close our eyes. And if right now as I'm talking, you just feel like this is me, this is my moment, I want to invite you to pray with me this really simple prayer. And this prayer is not a magic formula. It's not some religious rite. What this prayer is, it's a prayer of surrender where you are yielding yourself to a God who loves you and committing your life to follow Him. It's the most important decision you'd ever make. And if that's you, if you want to give your life to Jesus today, I want you to pray something like this. Just repeat after me. Lord Jesus, just say it out loud. Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner and I'm separated from you. I need you, Jesus. I confess my own way doesn't work. And so here today, I surrender. I repent of my sin. I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe you rose from the dead and you conquered the grave. Today, I give my life to you. I'm yours, Jesus. And if you just prayed that prayer, I want to invite our ministry team to come up to the front. If you just prayed that prayer, don't leave today without telling somebody. Let us pray for you. Let's start the journey together of learning what does it mean to follow Him and the life and the freedom that comes with a life submitted to Jesus. For the rest of us, I'd like to invite you into a time of ministry as we wrap up and I think this is one of the most significant parts of the service. If, as we're worshiping, you feel like, I have just been living according to my own authority, whatever that looks like for you, then start walking. You know, a great way to sabotage your flesh is to just take a step. You know, at that point, you're too far gone. You just got to keep going. Start walking. Go tell somebody. Get it out there. Let somebody pray for you. And if you're here today and you have a need that's nothing related to what I've talked about, a sickness, a financial need, something going on in a relationship, don't leave church without getting prayed for, whatever that may look like. So, Lord Jesus, we submit this time to you. Our heart is to surrender. We love you, God. Now, fill us up today. Lord, teach us the freedom and the life that comes submitted to you.